So today in American Conversations, we have the illustrious Dr. Andy Wakefield, who is now a turned filmmaker, uh, activist, taken on the issue of protecting children and humanity worldwide. And uh, Andy, welcome. Christine, thank you very much for having me on. Great pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's nice to, to meet you and talk to you, you know, because I, I've been a big fan for a long time. And one of the things I think that we're at a pivotal point here, and it really hit me last week when a very dear friend of mine um, who went to Georgetown University with me claimed that he was not going to read Bobby Kennedy's book because Bobby Kennedy believed in a debunked uh, study. And I said to myself, I called Polly and I said, you know what, we need to book Andy's on my list, but we need to book Andy now because um, I'm all for taking on the disinformation, the lies, the prejudice, people who want to, you know, subvert the truth. And I figured we might as well get your story out because a lot of people don't realize that what you went through um, years ago actually has been proven to be right as history has continued. So let's begin at the very beginning and let's start with your background and the study that you did that caused all the consternation and the defamation of you and the attack on you. Because I think people really need to understand the history and put it in context for today. Certainly, Christine, let me try and characterize it. It's always, you know, there are times when I say, I'm never gonna go back over this again. It's out there if people wanna read it, but you know, it, people deserve to know what happened. And so let's just, reflect on what happened at the beginning of the 1990s. I went to St. Mary's Hospital Medical School. I graduated as a physician in 1981 and became a gastrointestinal surgeon, an academic surgeon with a big research team uh, whose principal interests were inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, two epidemic diseases that were affecting younger and younger populations that were an enigma. We did not know what was causing them. So that was my my background. I was entirely mainstream. I came from six generations of doctors who had trained at the same medical school uh, as part of the University of London. And I was invested very much in traditional medicine, in listening to patients or patients' parents above all. The priority was not to assume that I knew whether they were right or wrong. My job was to listen to them, act upon the clues that they were providing to me and to the best of my ability, resolve their problems. And that's the way I practiced. I was working on the possible role of measles virus and measles vaccines in inflammatory bowel disease when in May 1995 I got a call from a mother, a very clever, articulate uh, mother, not anti-vaccine, took her child to be vaccinated on time. And she said to me, Dr. Wakefield, my child was absolutely fine, developmentally normal, he speech, language, interaction with his siblings, and then he had a, an MMR vaccine, a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and he had a seizure, he went to sleep, he woke up three days later, he, the lights had gone out. He was never the same again. He'd lost all of his acquired skills and he was diagnosed with autism. And I said, I'm very sorry to hear that. I know nothing about autism. I'm mm -hmm. a gastroenterologist. And when I was at medical school, autism was so rare, we weren't even taught about it. Perhaps one in 10,000 children or fewer were affected by this problem. 
And she said, Dr. Wakefield, the reason I'm calling you as a gastroenterologist is because my son has terrible and intractable gastrointestinal problems, diarrhea 12 times a day, failure to thrive. Uh, I know he's in pain. He's lost the ability to articulate that in terms of words, but I know is his mother. And how old was this child again? Five? The child at the time was about seven. Seven. And he had regressed at around the age of 18, 15 to 18 months. And she said, Dr. Wakefield, I need your help because the physicians that I've been to see say, oh, that's just part of autism. Your child is bound to have diarrhea 12 times a day. It's just part. No, it wasn't. That didn't make any sense at all. And, And they said, Dr. Wakefield, not only does this problem affect my child, but there is an epidemic of this particular type of regressive autism with these physical manifestations. And so I took that very, very seriously. Uh, and I put together a research team of some of the best people in the world, Professor John Walker-Smith, the world's leading pediatric gastroenterologist, uh, mm-hmm. among others, and his team. There were 13 of us. We came together, and we decided that these children needed to be investigated. At the very least, we needed to rule out that they had some underlying disease in their intestine that was causing this profound distress. The other interesting thing of note was that the mothers said, when my child's gastrointestinal problems are bad, his autism is at its worst. And when this is good, this is good as well. Mm-hmm. So we believe that there is a link between what is going on in the intestine and the, and the brain. And this, to gastroenterologists, was fascinating. Not to psychiatrists who dismissed it, but to gastroenterologists, right. we had seen this time and time again with celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, mm-hmm. uh, which is primarily a bowel disease, an immune disease in the bowel, the first symptoms may be depression or seizures or optic neuritis, inflammation of the optic nerve. So there was a clear gut-brain connection that was already established in the field of gastroenterology. It was also the same for many other conditions, but this wasn't unusual to us. This wasn't something that was alien that was uh, we could dismiss. And so we investigated these children. We investigated them. Pardon me for interrupting. Had it been in, in, had it had there been a link between the the autism, the brain, and the tummy at that point in time? No, they had done a study like this. I mean, there had been occasional references to it, but mm-hmm. it had been it had sort of been dismissed as okay. oh, that's just part of the many problems that these children suffer. But never had anyone said, is there a mechanistic link between? something going on in the intestine you see they'd not been if these children had not had autism but had had these same gastrointestinal symptoms they would have been investigated but because they had autism why why is it because everybody at that point in time in in the 1990 1995 era didn't want to link autism they didn't no 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 they would just believe that because these children had autism then that was also going to be associated with gastrointestinal disturbances. It was not joined up thinking. Okay. It wasn't rational thinking. It was just the problem was largely that autism had fallen into the hands of psychiatrists. That was one of the greatest travesties because they- Or or they claimed claimed genetics at at that point. Well, before that, Christine, they blamed the mothers. Yeah. They blamed the mother for hating their child, that the child- recognized that they were hated and wanted to die. I mean, this was the bizarre thinking behind Mm -hmm. the origins of autism. So it was the mother's fault. And so then it became a genetic disease. It was the parent's fault again. No, it wasn't. No, this was an epidemic of an environmentally induced disorder. And it was going up exponentially. 
So we put the autism to one side and said, we are going to investigate these children on the basis of their severe gastrointestinal symptoms because they have been discriminated against because they have autism. So we did that. And lo and behold, the parents were right. When Professor Walker-Smith's team conducted the colonoscopies on these children and biopsied them, there was inflammation. Now, what happened, Christine, after that is when we treated the inflammation, when Professor Walker-Smith's team put these children on special diets and anti-inflammatory medication that we would use routinely in Crohn's disease, for example, not only did the gastrointestinal problems get better, but the autism got better. We didn't cure it, but it made a dramatic impact to the cognitive well-being as well as the physical well-being of these children. That was fascinating. Mm-hmm. It was rather like, if you remember the story of Lorenzo's oil, there was a an intervention that was not expected to work that had a dramatic impact upon an apparently irreversible condition. And bear in mind, at the time, the psych- psychiatrists were telling these parents, your child has autism, there is no treatment, there mm-hmm. is no hope of any resolution or cure, put them in a home, forget about them and move on. That was medicine's answer to this problem of autism. It was an utter disgrace. And they also called the the mothers hysterical mothers at the time. Yeah. And the mothers were absolutely right. And so going back to my basic medical training, listen to the parents. No one knows their child like the mother was absolutely right. But we'd forgotten that. In our ignorance and our arrogance as physicians, we had put that to one side and assumed that we knew better. No, we didn't. So you can see, Christine, that at that time, putting this out there was going to provoke an extraordinarily powerful adverse reaction amongst the status quo, amongst the psychiatrists, amongst the pediatricians. Are you telling us, dear boy, that we've missed this problem all along? Well, actually, sir, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. And children mm-hmm. have suffered as a consequence. Right. I'm afraid that's just a fact of life. And so then when we said in the paper, the Lancet paper, which was the first 12 children, a, a case report, not a hypothesis testing study, just a, a reiteration of here's what we were told, here's mm-hmm. what we found, here is what we believe needs to be done next. Not vaccines cause autism or this bowel disease is unique to autism, but isn't this interesting? And this is the way in which human diseases are described. Firstly, it's a handful of people who manifest with a, an idiosyncratic and very unusual pattern of signs and symptoms that merit publication in their own right. You don't draw conclusions about it other than this needs further investigation. And that's what the Lancet paper did. But because it reiterated the parent's story of regression following a vaccine, that was an abomination. That was a challenge to the religion of vaccination. Well, I don't care because my duty is not to the religion of vaccination. My duty is not to public health. My duty is not to the Royal Society of Psychiatrists or whoever they may be. Right. My job is to that child. My duty is to that child. My professional obligation is to that family to answer their questions to the best of my ability. And if that upsets the system, the system needs to be upset. 
frankly. And that that also historically uh, is at the at the time where doctors and schools and social workers were advising that children be put on SSRIs. There was, yeah, I mean, there was a big, you know, every kid needs to be put on a pharmaceutical drug for behavior because the kid may be too active. So, I, you know, that, that the 1990s was um, exploding here in the United States. I don't know if it was like that in the UK at that time, but I remember that 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 was the beginning of Columbine. And I had a, a journalist friend, Kelly O'Meara, who com- who actually compared all the children that were involved with the Columbine-like attacks, and they were all on some type of SSRI, psychotropic drug, um, anti-psychotropic drug. You know, it was like a cocktail. So it was pushing everything on kids. And there was a lot of disinformation that later turned out to be, you know, the truth surfaced for some of that. Um, What happened after, talk about what happened after you guys published that paper. The other other thing that that I I had forgotten until I read the science uh, article that came out yesterday, I forwarded to you last night, Peter Daszak was involved with some of this research. Peter Daszak was involved later. Peter Daszak was, um, just just as an aside. Yeah, let's explain who he is right now. Peter Daszak was a researcher uh, doing a PhD at the University of Kingston upon Thames, which is down in the sort of southwest corner of, of London. And I was working with his boss, and his boss was an expert in, in in electron microscopy and looking for viruses, for example, under the a very high-powered microscope. And so Peter Daszak, we had a grant, we we put um, we gave him a grant to do uh, to, to to look for measles virus in diseased intestine of, of children with inflammatory bowel disease, and, and that's what Peter Daszak did. And, and he we took him to uh, when he finished the work, we took him to San Diego to the Digestive Diseases Week, which is where all gastroenterologists from around the world meet in one location. There are about fourteen thousand gastroenterologists. There. It's not a good week in America to have diarrhea. I can tell you that. <laughs> and they. We would meet there and you would present your science. And uh, Peter Daszak went and presented the science. I remember he was actually more interested in heading down to the border to score some marijuana than actually performing uh, his <laughs> duties at this. So he he was an unusual character, Peter Daszak. And um, that was the kind of, we published the paper and that was the end of our relationship with Peter. But then he went on to become infamous in in the Wuhan episode, and it, I have to say, it doesn't surprise me. Why? By virtue of the, the characteristic of, the, of this, he was, um, like, as I say, his interest was in heading down to, to, to get some marijuana in Mexico, rather than actually focus on the science itself. So um, he wasn't absolutely committed to, to, to the scientific, the role of you know, the, the scientific inquiry, let's put it that way. He did share me, with me also that his father was a member of the, the Schultzstaffen, Adolf Hitler's SS. And that, that was an interesting observation. I'm not sure whether that's relevant to Peter's behavior uh, currently, but um, it, it's just uh, an interesting little anecdote. Well, then you've got Klaus Schwab's family who's also connected to the Nazis. Yes. Mm. 
Well, going back to your paper, okay, so so it gets published, and then you get you and your colleagues get attacked. Yes, um, the first, the next thing that happened is with the publication of the paper, the dean of the medical school held a press briefing, uh, and that was inevitably going to give a lot of media profile to this uh, simple case series. Uh, but he felt it was important that it would attract attract attention to the medical school and potentially funding. And in advance of that press conference, I, I wrote to him and I wrote to all my colleagues and I said, look, I've done a thorough investigation of the uh, safety studies around all measles containing vaccines, measles, measles, rubella and MMR. And I am shocked by the absence of any adequate safety studies of MMR vaccine in particular. Mm -hmm. I said, in light of this, in light of my research, I can no longer support the continued use of this vaccine. I will continue to vigorously support the use of the single vaccine. So bear, bear in mind, this is now many years ago. This is the, the sort of state of play at the time. I will continue to support the use of the single vaccine. Now, at the time, they were freely available. The single measles, mumps, rubella vaccines were freely available in both the US and the UK. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made that suggestion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the dean was aware of my position and so he had three options he could cancel the press briefing if he didn't want that to become public knowledge he could right. ban me from the press briefing and just have the other colleagues there or when the question of you know what do parents do know about vaccination came up as inevitably it would in the press briefing he could deflect the question to someone else and not to me. He didn't do that. He held the press briefing, I was there, and when the question came up, he directed it straight to me, knowing what my answer would be. And I said, as I told him I would say in the letter, I can no longer support the use of MMR. I continue to vigorously support the use of the single vaccine until this issue is resolved scientifically. And that was because it. Because the safety... The, the safety studies were not adequate in your opinion at that point in time. And, and, and it's okay. Let's just point out, it's okay for doctors, researchers, scientists to have differences of opinions. We are obliged to have differences of opinion. Absolutely. Okay. Because, because if we don't have differences of opinion, it assumes we know everything. Right. And we don't. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, and I, I was, uh, Todd, my colleague in this uh, endeavor, I was telling him that, you know, I'm old enough and have been worked at uh, four networks and, you know, have freelance for one in London. And, you know, I go back long ways, but I remember when Phil Donahue, even Katie Couric, uh, you know, and other, the, the networks that I worked for, you know, absolutely allowed a debate about vaccines. Phil Donahue's show was probably, I mean, so, you know, Phil Donahue preceded Oprah. But Phil Donahue used to talk about vaccines and have people on all the time here in the States. And people forget that. People forget that Katie Couric today maybe thinks that everybody's crazy challenging this, but she actually had shows that she did for NBC News. But NBC News is now Microsoft NBC. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, un unless you understand the history of news and the history of television, and you're old enough to know what the coverage was, you know, what's happening now is abnormal. 
And what you did back in 1995 was not abnormal. It was normal to challenge and to keep thinking that science is never is a continuum. Re scientific research is a continuum. So you 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 not only got slammed, but they they really went after you viscerally to take your license away. They did. Now, just let me paint the picture because we're all okay. now we're, we're used to the cancel culture now. When used to, censorship is oh yeah is front and center, but at the time it wasn't. As you point out, people were able to talk about this. And right, but what what happened at the time? There was an imagine this, and please don't. This is not me whinging or whining. This is just setting out the landscape of how it was at the time. There was me on the one hand, and on the other hand, there was. The there was the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Pediatricians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, the World Health Organization, the British government, <laughs> the massed bans of the pharmaceutical industry, and the American government, and there was me. And then there, and, then and whose he, message do you think is going to prevail there, Christine? Well, not, not only that, but but it's also you know the 1990s is after the U.S. government passed the federal law saying that for any vaccine there was no vaccine liability for the U.S. pharmaceutical companies. So they had that was 1986. So by the mid 90s, these guys think that they're on a roll. So here you have. You guys in the UK challenging, I mean, quite frankly, it wasn't an insane position you had because what you're saying is instead of combining the MMR, just do each one of them individually. That's correct. We did not see this problem. I, I remember one child amongst the first 183 that we investigated at the Royal Free, one child who had regressed after the single vaccine. And his schedule had been very unusual. He was in the Middle East. His father was in the oil industry, and he had had a single measles vaccine at six months and a booster dose at 12 months. That was unheard of. That was no protocol used anywhere else in the world. Boosters? So it was a very unusual pattern of exposure. And he was the only child who regressed after the single vaccine. But, but you're quite right. There we have a, a situation where there is me trying to get my message out, and then this... Rupert Murdoch then joined in the fight. Why? Rupert Murdoch, who has hugely invested in, in, in vaccines. That's true. Before, Did he, was he invested at that point in time in the 90s? He was becoming invested. In fact, what happened was his son, James Murdoch, was put onto the board of GlaxoSmithKline as a non-executive director. His job was to protect that company's uh, reputation in the media, specifically News International, and his job was to come after me and destroy my career. So what we now had is mainstream media joining forces with all these other people. And so their message was inevitably going to be the one that prevailed. And that's what happened. And GlaxoSmithKline was the biggest manufacturer of the MMR vaccine in the UK and in Europe. So, And they were defendants in a class action litigation on behalf of children against uh, the, va the vaccine manufacturers, because you still in England could sue the manufacturer, not in the States. As you say, there was this National Childhood Vaccine Injury Compensation Act, which prevented you litigating directly against the pharmaceutical industry. So that was the, there, there was the landscape. Now, don't get me wrong. I quite enjoy that kind of those, those kind of odds. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a challenge, you know, 
it, but it did, really, it kind of, really. it, you know, it sharpens your focus. Uh, right. So the long and short of it is that they employed a, a journalist called Brian Deer, who is, according to, you know, all of the criteria that I've witnessed as a, as a, as a non-expert in psychiatry, a psychopath. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that in a clinical sense. He had a belief system which, despite all the evidence presented to the contrary, was unshakable. And if you criticized his belief system, then you were insane. And, and he worked as a journalist for Rupert Murdoch and produced a paper which ultimately alleged fraud, abuse of children, um, conducting investigations to, to experiment. It was, it was an extraordinary story. Mm -hmm. And one that led us to the General Medical Council and to lose up my license. But I, I just want to put this in context, Christine, because it's a huge story. But uh, I set out to sue Brian Deere and the British Medical Journal for their allegations of research fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that was going to be a huge undertaking and very expensive, but it was worth it. It had to be done because the truth had to prevail. There was no fraud, none at all. Every word in that Lancet paper was absolutely factual and true, and Brian Deere knew it and had evidence for it. There was no abuse of children. Everything that needed to be done under an investigational review board approval was done so. So I took this, I, in, I took them to court, I tried to take them to court in, in the state of Texas. And Texas has a long arm statute that allows you to do this. The BMJ, the British Medical Journal, is sold to Texas universities and doctors. Right. It profits in the state of Texas. And therefore, you are entitled to sue them in the state of Texas. And you also have Texas researchers and scientists and doctors who publish in that journal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the law was on our side, yet the appeals court stopped that happening. They did not allow me to sue Landier and the BMJ in the state of Texas. We were denied jurisdiction, and the case was therefore thrown out. It was never heard. It was never heard on its merits. It was thrown out on technical grounds. Now, let me ask your, your, your colleague this question. Um, why would anyone, unless they are truly insane, go to the trouble and the expense of filing a defamation proceeding against these people in which all of the facts are going to be laid bare before the public, all of the facts. Why would mm -hmm. you do that unless you believe in your case? They fought tooth and nail to prevent that case going to court. Why? Because they knew that they would lose. And that would be the end of the myth of Dr. Wakefield having committed the fraud. In other words, it would have transferred to them because in fact, they were the ones who committed the fraud and they knew it. And so that's the status quo now. The power and the money prevent. <clears throat> so let's talk about what was, what was uh, several years later with the Simpson Wood Conference in Atlanta and, and, and what was discovered in, in, I guess it was known by the CDC officials at the time, that the MMR had too many metals in it uh, following the 1986 act when they were giving more MMRs to children. At, I think it was younger ages too. Didn't the ages drop? Yeah, yeah, there, there are two stories in parallel here. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me separate them out. Firstly, right. MMR is a live viral vaccine. These are right. a live viruses. So there, are, there is no mercury in 
the live viral vaccines because as a preservative, it would kill the viruses. There is, as you point out, there is mercury, if it was, mercury in other childhood vaccines, the DPT, the Hib, the hepatitis B. So there are two elements occurring in parallel. One is the MMR vaccine. Now, I was called to testify before Congress in 2000, 2001 on this issue before the Oversight Committee on Government Reform. And at the time, I met with the CDC and they said, OK, um, not every child gets autism, but all children get the MMR. So why is that? Why are some children susceptible? And I said, it's a very good question. We believe it is the age of exposure. The younger you get the vaccine, the greater the risk of autism. And not all children get the vaccine at the same age. There's mm -hmm. a wide span of ages. And we made that we put forward that hypothesis. I put forward that hypothesis on the basis that we know that for children who get measles, natural measles, if you get it under one, you're at greater risk of a severe reaction than if you get it over one. Mm -hmm. One imagines um, intuitively that that is because of the maturation of the immune system, that you are able to better deal with a viral infection as you get older. So they went away and they tested that hypothesis in a cohort of children in Atlanta. And they found that it was absolutely true. They found that children who got the MMR vaccine on the CDC's recommended schedule of 12 to 18 months were highly significantly at greater risk of autism than children who got it later in life after 24 and 36 months. They proved that I was right. And I don't mean that, that in a conceited way. It, it just is a well, no, but, but it adds it adds to the 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 truth of the the truth of the narrative of your scientific judgment. Okay, yes. because you were slammed for the first paper, you're brought before Congress. What, did they think that, that they were going to bring you because they expected you to lie? I mean, seriously, let's, let's get real about this. So they bring you forth. You give them the hypothesis. They take it because they respect you. They do the study, and what you what your hypothesis landed on actually turns out to be true with an independent study. Absolutely, and and, and the, what they did, and here's the sadness, because what happened to me is irrelevant. What happened to the children who were injured in the interim? In the fourteen years later, William Thompson, senior scientist of that study, the man who designed it, collected the data, analyzed the data came mm -hmm. forward and said, we have done a terrible thing and I can no longer live with that. Mm -hmm. We have committed scientific fraud. We made this finding. We hid that finding. We destroyed the documents and we presented a completely different scenario to the public that MMR vaccine was safe. So in those 14 years, millions of children were exposed to a risk of a permanent, serious neurological injury knowingly mm -hmm. and deliberately by senior members of the CDC, including the head of the CDC and the head of the National Immunization Program, they knew. And that is the tragedy. And when we went to Congress and said, it is your job as an oversight committee to investigate this, they wouldn't do it. Why? We don't know. Because they're paid by the pharmaceutical industry, because they're lobbied by front uh, organizations for the pharmaceutical industry because they're told if you do this, if you raise any questions over the safety of MMR, children will die from measles and it'll be your fault. Whatever reason, we, we never got to learn the reason, Congress did not do its job and children continued to be injured by that vaccine.
Well, I can say as somebody who's, you know, lived in and out of Washington, D.C., you know, for, for, I mean, I went to college there. I worked for the networks there, even though I was in New York and traveling abroad. Um, You know, the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Association in the 80s, in the 80s, was enormous, okay, when I was political director at CNN. So it doesn't surprise me by, you know, the 1990s and the 2000s because they, you know, everybody in D.C. on K Street knows that they hold a lot of power on both sides. I mean, when Senator Ron Johnson held this round table with the, with the COVID vaccine injured and then a whistleblower and some experts at the table, I was there. And, and the most astounding thing I noticed with all the decades that I've been in and out of DC covering politics worldwide is that he missed the mark on saying what needs to be addressed on Capitol Hill. And that is the insane amount of money of political campaign donations to both sides of the aisle. And if you do not address the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Association influence on Capitol Hill, nothing's going to change. Yeah. The cover up. Yes. And the public needs to know that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I did the Catholic, the global Catholic investigation um, 20 years ago and it just happened fortuitously, you know, having been born in Boston and raised as a Catholic, I was, I got access to, to the historical secret archives and I sat with the prosecutors and told them in Massachusetts, stop negotiating with Cardinal Law, go in there, use the search and seizure and take those out and it'll give you the roadmap, even though it's prohibited by the statute of limitations. It's not just one pharmaceutical. It's the lawyers. It's the sales force. It's the laws. It's the state legislators. It's the, the, the congressmen and senators. It's the lobbying people on K Street. And that's what the public doesn't understand. It's the system that sets this up. It's the journals um, where, you know, they're politicized. It's the money that Fauci and his people give out that, you know, in, intimidates other people to raise scientific inquiries. And hence the censorship of the truth or just the inquiries themselves. You're absolutely right. And you raised this issue earlier, the 1986 Act, so that people know and this is the basis of our the latest movie, 1986, the act that, that we put out. And we put it out because it is a very complex story of legislation and litigation, but it's so important for people to understand why we are where we are right now. And that is that it, the act was intended to do three things. And it was introduced because of lies that were told by Wyeth and Ledley about the origins of the pertussis, the whooping cough mm-hmm. vaccine. That was really where it came from. And they faced bankruptcy from lawsuits from parents who'd been injured or or paralyzed and so they lied to congress and what that that gave them the act and the act had three purposes one was to remove a degree of liability from the pharmaceutical industry so that they could continue to produce vaccines the other was to make vaccines safer by doing the appropriate science and the third was to compensate children who had been injured by their vaccines the latter two have failed miserably the former has succeeded on behalf of the drug companies enormously. So what happened was they had a mandatory market. Children had to get vaccines to go to school and no liability. They had the perfect business model. All they could do was make a massive profit. 
And when they realized that, the number of vaccines on the schedule went up dramatically mm-hmm. because we don't have to do the safety studies adequately. We are not going to get sued for the consequences once they get onto the CDC's recommended schedule for children. So we are going to make a lot of money. And that was the origin of this problem that you've just alluded to is because they made so much money. They became so powerful that they bought doctors. They bought medical training in medical schools. Right. They bought the medical journals. They owned the editorial in medical journals. What was going to get published? What wasn't going to get published? Mm-hmm. They owned politicians. They wrote policy mm-hmm. on both sides of the house. And then they bought the media. And they bought the media through a slightly different mechanism, and that is the direct-to-consumer advertising. This is the ability of the drug companies to, to, to advertise their products on mainstream television and in the news. And that was that, that was actually in the 1980s, because I remember Absolutely. when yeah. it came out I think in the was, was that under... Um, uh, and uh, the Clintons, maybe. Was, was no, that... no, 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 no. This is under Reagan. It's 1980. It was under Reagan. It's 83, 84. Okay. Um, and we were the only country in the world that allowed drugs, pharmaceuticals, drugs. And, and I don't think it was vaccines at that point in time, but it was mostly drugs. And then you had to have disclaimers. Yeah. The FCC came out and said, no, you have to have disclaimers. But then New Zealand was the other country. New and Zealand, I, that's right. There are two. New Zealand filed after that. But they were the only two countries in the world. But 20 years ago, when you had the Internet, all of a sudden, the Internet is the Wild West playground. And so if you take a look at the Internet, you have all these drug advertisements on the Internet. So people don't know the context and the history here of how the I mean, it's like porn coming at you, but it's pharmaceuticals coming at you. And then if you take a look at the U.S. in terms of statistics, how many Americans are on prescriptions? It's something like 73, 74% of Americans are on prescriptions. And what they found from a sociological point of view, as you had as the years went on with the, the advertisements on television, people would actually look at this stuff and go into their doctor's office and say, hey, I've got X, Y, and Z, and I saw this ad on television, and can I get that? So it became like a candy store to these people. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You've got, on one hand, you've got the people, they're pushing them on television, and so they go to the doctor, and you've got them paying the the drug companies, bribing the doctors and paying the doctors for writing the prescription. Again, the business model is enhanced. And here's an interesting thing, and you'll have an opinion on this, Christine, is this made them, if you look at... um, a non-election year, somewhat 75 to 80% of the income of the mainstream news networks is from the pharmaceutical industry. In other words, the industry, the the media, the news networks have come to rely upon that income for their lifestyle, for their very survival. Mm-hmm. So it, what it means is that drug companies own the editorial. They own the program. They own MSNBC. They own NBC. They own these companies. They own... Well, now, now, and I and I will push back a little bit. <clears throat> I know that when I worked at CNN, people said that Ted Turner had an influence on the coverage. That wasn't necessarily true, and I can say that because I, I was editorially, you know, involved with the political coverage. Um, but the one thing that I do, I do know f- from the perspective of the legal guys, 
I know for a fact, because a guy who used to work at CNN with me went over and started working for NBC as a straight reporter, but he would contribute to MSNBC coverage. He was then in a room one time where the uh, NBC lawyers said that they did not consider the people that appeared and hosted on MSNBC to be real reporters, okay? And it was said in the context of saying to the straight NBC reporters, don't offer your opinions during a stand-up. And one of these guys turned around and said, tell that, you know, tell Chris Matthews that he he's not a real reporter. But there is when when NB, when MSNBC and Fox went on the air, it was like 96, 97. It was it was when the TWA airplane went down and Princess died. Died, whatever year that was. That's when those guys went on. So it was more of opinions, talking heads. Um and they don't necessarily think sometimes from a legal position that they're as narrowly defined as journalists as they would be on, say, let's 60 Minutes or the evening news, the CBS evening news. And I think that the culture of the whole cable influence here in the United States um, and just the trajectory of how news is produced. It's more of, we're going to give you money to say what we want you to say, as opposed to creating a show and looking for sponsorship and not having an influence. And that's, and, and, and I take a look at the censorship that has happened in the last 20 months, a little bit different than anybody else does. Because the pharmaceuticals, advertise on the internet why if they pay if they're paying silicon valley and silicon valley is doing the censorship doesn't anybody think that that's a little bit interesting especially they really they? i remember years ago at the beginning of this when cheryl atkinson was still at cbs and she was doing some wonderful work investigating great, great friend and we sat down and did an interview about vaccines and autism and mm -hmm. And she said, Andy, when we've when this is edited, this segment that we're doing now is edited, in 15 minutes, I will get a call from the top floor, from the money men, and they will say, our sponsor has said that if this segment plays, they will withdraw their sponsorship, so kill it now. Mm -hmm. Cheryl was wrong. It was five minutes. Five mm -hmm. minutes before they called down and cancelled that piece. So there was that was my personal insight for the first time into the influence of the sponsors in this case the pharmaceutical industry on what played right. and what didn't play. right um, so it, it was a very sad time and you're absolutely right christine the public do not realize the extent to which they have been duped they're being led by the nose by these very very powerful influential people and and, and again the, the the numbers the amount of money is so much greater and it pervades so much k street government, uh, broadcasting, uh, right the way down to what we're seeing on our Instagram. It, it's, it's extraordinary, the power of these people. It's extraordinary, but, but here's the upside, because I like a good fight. I like the competition. I like to take on the bad guys, from human trafficking to the Catholic Church, and now it's the pharmaceuticals. Um, I think this is a great opportunity, and people like you and me and other people who, you know, who 
should think of this as the all-time great fight to, to pull down the walls and show the corruption on the inside. And people should get scared to death because there are people in the game now that know how to do this. And with Bobby's book coming out about Fauci, which I read, and also with tell us about your movie, because let's leave on a high note, because this fight That's is true. only beginning and we're going to have some fun with this. Well, you're absolutely right. There is a silver lining to COVID. It has woken the world up to this issue, to vaccine safety. You're gonna put that in me? It was a rite of passage for children to have vaccines. People didn't think too hard about it, but you're gonna put that in me and it's untested? It's experiment? No, you're not. So mm -hmm. we went originally 30 years ago from a handful of people, literally a handful of people who were expressing concerns about vaccine safety and risking their careers. Now it's half the world. Now it is half the world. And with, and with, but all the world is targeted. I mean, Gates, yeah. Gates, and how many times did Jordan ask uh, Fauci? So you know, what is it going to take for for herd immunity? You know, how, how many people? What are the percentage? And Fauci couldn't give it because Fauci didn't want to say everybody on the planet. Yeah, but it so did. Landscape is changing dramatically. So uh, yeah. the, the film. So we uh, the the good thing about working on films against the, or about the pharmaceutical industry is they give you no, there's no end of material to work with because they are so evil <laughs> That's and so, true. so That's corrupt. True. Uh, there is, and so we made the act. The act was the story about the CDC and William Thompson. And it was, it exploded worldwide because as you know, De Niro pulled it from, from Tribeca where it got in on its merits. And but he also he said went that, on the, he went yeah, on the news he, the following Monday, also, uh, the following week and said, we shouldn't have done that. Everybody should right. watch this film. That's right. And it exploded worldwide. We call that the De Niro effect. And so the wonderful irony is that censorship worked in our favor. It gave it worldwide profile. Mm -hmm. Then came the act, and the act was the last film, and that was a very important film. And that is available because of COVID, the theater's locked down, because of censorship, we lost this, this, the, the, the uh things like YouTube and, and Vimeo and all those sort of things, but it's there available at 1986theact.com, 1986theact.com. Please go and watch. It was meant to do the heavy lifting for, for everybody to say, let's take this complex story of legislation, litigation, fraud, and vaccine science, and let's make it easy for people and entertaining for people to watch. Engage them, set, get them sitting forward in their seats, they will watch it, and then they will learn about what really happened. So I've just made a, a film for Bobby, in fact, uh, for Bobby Kennedy on infertility, which is something that I kind of put to one side, the role of vaccines in infertility for some time. But the compelling evidence that came forward meant that I, I made this film. So I think that will be released in January after Bobby's book has had its impact. Um, and that's going to scare the hell of, out of people. You realize that. Yeah. Yeah, and now we're in the middle of a new film. We're in pre-production on a new film. I can't say anything about it other than it's it's a big one. But uh, so I love film. I love making films. I film when I was sitting as a clinician across the desk from someone. I could help one person at a time. Film enables you to get to many millions of people at once, and so it's been a very powerful device. And um, yeah, it, it's that's my life now. So uh, I think the people who are losing their jobs, the current climate, there is life mm -hmm. after what you're doing. You need to be positive. Please do not, you know, Richard Branson would say, give yourself 15 minutes to sulk and then move on. Get over it. That's true. And that's what you must do. You must do because 
we are, as I say, we are winning. The common sense approach, the right approach is winning. It's gone from a handful to half the world. And that number is only going to grow as more boosters and more boosters are required and more and more vaccine injuries accumulate. People are going to go, ah, I now get it. So this is, winning is uncomfortable, but this is what it looks like. And if we stay true to our beliefs, to integrity, to honesty, we will prevail. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. I want you to come back and, and when you're ready to talk about your latest film, which I know a little bit about, I, I want you to come back and talk about it because I think the story behind that is, is part of the evolution of what happened to you. Christine, thank you very much. Great to be on.